So welcome everyone. This is Adjusting to Life Babies, Pediatric Chiropractic, Osteopathy, and Craniosacral. And we're here with an amazing general practitioner, osteopath, James Gatos. He is in the Bay Area, California, and has been in practice um, for over 34 years. But um, he is originally from Vermont and moved to the Bay Area five years ago. And Dr. Jim, where were you born and raised originally? I was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And then when I was five, we moved to Vermont. So that was really like a green acres, but we <laughs> lived, you know? Yeah. So everything was, my dad was very into yoga. He was injured in World War II. He was really more like my grandfather's age and injured in World War II. And the only way he could get out of the wheelchair was with yoga. But when we came to Vermont and he mentioned yoga, people all thought he meant yogurt. Oh. So it's one of those funny things. <laughs> That's so great. And so you were, were you were born and raised in the same community for many years, I assume. Yes, Middlebury has a, a small, wonderful town, a large dairy farm presence and yet it has Millbury College. So you get the town gown there. You get a wide exposure to all the summer school people, and then you're working on farms mm. for your uh, summer money. Lots of animal exposure. A lot of animal exposure, or what comes out of animals anyways. Well, I've seen you do wonderful work with babies um, and children and you were a part of our craniosacral clinic for many years um, till COVID hit and we haven't seen you. Um, you. You really seem to listen to the body so closely and I thought it'd be amazing to have parents hear about your work and what osteopathy can do for children and babies. Um, but what, why don't we go back to where you were born and raised um, what, what did you see about birth from your family and community? Um, what were some messages or did you receive about health and healing did you get from your family and the community you were grown up in? Well, as I said, my dad was in a wheelchair for many years and didn't expect to have children if he couldn't get out of the wheelchair. And so he was doing yoga at a very young age, at a young age for us. And I remember when we found his cane, we thought it was for some vaudeville act that he was doing because we could chase him home from his beauty salon and throw snowballs at him and stuff. And we never knew that he had such a severe problem with his uh, lower back and, and leg. And then I remember as well, when I was in middle school, suddenly everyone became very concerned about me. They said I was depressed. This was my understanding later on. But my own personal experience was my, my dad uh, was into Adele Davis and vitamins and he started giving me some B-complex. And I remember how my life changed after that. It just seemed like a light bulb went on. And so that was a ver very early memory of that. And then I used to ask him to buy me vitamins so I could try out 
as it were, what vitamin E felt like and what zinc felt like. And I was very interested in that. And then uh, still a couple years after that, um, he told me he wanted me to go see his eye doctor, who was an optometrist. And they put me in reading glasses, which was kind of unheard of for that age. Um, I remember my mom taking flack for that from another eye doctor that she was visiting, an MD. And um, again, that made a huge difference in um, my ability to read and retain and, and enjoy reading. And then lastly, um, a, friend was, a friend was being picked on in the gym after class. And I saw how he defended himself against this bully who ended up going away kind of crying that You're, you picked on me type of thing. And I said, Mark, what did you do? Because this guy was just really milquetoast character, not someone who would do anything like that. And he said, well, I'm taking karate now. And so I mentioned it to my dad and he was all over it because, you know, he would, he was having yoga classes in his beauty salon when we were young and there was no way I was going to go near any woman in a one piece bathing suit, you know, stretching <laughs> on the floor it was like not what we were into. So when we mentioned karate, he was like, boy, these kids all destroy their shoes in six months. And I want them to stand straight and tall and, and have more than I had. He was born in 1913, so he was a barber from the age of 12. So he just went went right to work and had a different life than he wanted for us. So um, this was more like a a fast tai chi. It was an animal style. So it was all these hidden moves. It didn't look like you were doing much fighting or kicking at all, and. Um, we had a lot of fun with it. It was very cooperative. And as I began to put together my ideas about my future, it seemed that I, I knew that it had to do with the human body and touch and balance and poise and nutrition. And that was really my, my big push. And then I applied to, to um, University of Vermont as an undergraduate and got in their pre-med program. But that was, it was like 300 kids in a class all just pushing to be first. And it was a real turnoff. I later on got into um, their chemistry program as a chemistry major. Um, and I have a funny story about that. I was, you know, you're around all these toxic fumes that you're just dumping the stuff right down the drain and they act like, oh, it's no big deal. And there was a, always a calendar on the wall that had a beautiful woman standing next to a waterfall in the forest. Actually, it was in the jungle. And one day I walked up and looked at the picture up close and it was a, a fake woman standing in front of fake trees with fake water. And it was all made out of plastic and it said something about you know, like better living through chemistry or something like that. And I thought that's classic for these people, just classic. And 
So I ended up looking into biochemistry, which was really run by a, the faculty were old dairy farmers that had PhDs. And they weren't interested in testing uh, multiple choice. It was all essay. So you really had to know your stuff. But I really liked the calm demeanor and the relaxed attitude and the wanting to teach you how to think rather than what I had been trained to do from almost failing my first year and hanging around a bunch of prep school kids who were only interested in getting an A and they didn't care about the, any of the academics at all. And so this was, this I felt like I found my home there, but I knew I wasn't a researcher. That's a completely different game. I, uh, but I did apply to MD school. And because of that first year that I wasn't on the Dean's list, they said, we have so many applicants that are straight A applicants that we're not interested in you. And it kind of put me on a no fly list if I wanted to apply there again. So I, I actually did what I wanted to do anyway, which was to, I went to the Peace Corps for two years and just seeing the dire consequences of poor hygiene, but yet the, the native traditions of, of ancient cultures that, that allowed health to stabilize within communities and families and in individual members, um, that seemed like it provided a glimpse at a more natural way of living that we more here in the United States get that um, from word to word, person to person by podcasts such as this, but there it exists in families and has for generations. And they would almost think it funny that, that we're talking about it because it, it's something that they do quite naturally. And so um, when I came back to the United States, I was strongly motivated in a way that I hadn't been before to actually turn the tables and go to these medical schools and find out what school would, would I pick rather than what school would pick me. And, and if you can believe it, there are medical schools that don't require you to take anatomy lab. In other words, you can just take the tests and, and never show up even for class for the first two years. And these are some well-known universities. Wow. And it just wasn't anything I was interested in. And then when someone mentioned osteopathy, and it turned out there was a convention that week in Burlington, and I went to the state convention, and I sat down next to a grandfatherly type who spoke to me like the old biochemist agriculture guys did. That's when I felt like somehow I had come home. So that's what made me explore osteopathic medicine, something, like I said, I'd never heard of it before. Wow. 
my dad was very excited because he had been to an osteopath when we lived in New Jersey. And then he found one, a retired one in Middlebury, Vermont. And he was very much an avid uh, participant in, a, in this type of a practice. So, and his hair, his beauty salon was always into nutrition for hair, skin, nails as well anyway. He was a kind of ahead of his time. Really? So there was much that he gave me that I then came into medicine with. So those are really my earliest thoughts about that. I didn't really have much baby stuff, except that you couldn't walk. It would take you an hour to walk 100 yards to go to the market because all the families in Ghana would stop you and want you to see the twins or want you to see the babies or, and very different life there. You'd have children as, as young as five strapping on a newborn on their back and, and taking off, maybe not a newborn, but let's just say a yearling and putting them on their back and then them all sitting in a circle and someone holds the baby up and, and these children are getting, very early identification with games and communication and so many uncles and people and next door neighbors come by the houses that these children easily know a hundred people by the time they're they're one or two years old so a completely different uh, lifestyle than what we have here that's very interesting hmm. So all these things reflected on my, on what type of medicine that I wanted to do medicine and then what type of medicine I wanted to practice. And then when I went to uh, medical school, we had, you know, all the regular courses that you have to take, the uh, anatomy and physiology and embryology and microanatomy and the biochemistry and pharmacology, things like that. But in osteopathic school, we also have osteopathic principles and practice, which is osteopathic philosophy and osteopathic manipulation. And one day, a teacher came in to, who wasn't our normal teacher, and uh, I was talking out of turn, and I really should have offered a, a faster apology but when I saw what I said to him, I went up and apologized. And he just told me, lay down on the table. And he put his hands on me. And when I woke up about 15 minutes later, the whole class was standing around and they said, he described every injury in your body. And then they said, how do you feel? And I said, I feel remarkably light, almost ecstatic. And that feeling stayed with me for about two weeks. Wow. And I didn't know what the guy did. And, and at that same time, we were supposed to find our mentor for the summer to be with for a month or two for that first summer of medical school. And I was afraid to ask him because I just didn't know what he had done to me. But I, I felt like I had been on vacation at the beach for two weeks when, when before that I had just been so uptight about studies and about just school life and well, everything provoked anxiety. So 
it was a complete change with whatever he'd done. And um, so that when I finally did have the courage to call him, um, admittedly after calling everyone else first, I um, I went to up to his office and he was a simple country general practitioner who made house calls and um, put his hands on every single patient that he had. Mm to be able to read where their body was self-correcting and how well it was able to self-correct so he could prescribe the right diet, activity, sleep, emotional balancing um, experiences that those per people could have. And of course he used medications as well. He said the hardest thing about being a good DO is that first you have to be a good MD. So you have to know your basics. You have to know what to do if they have to go to the hospital to recognize that. But mm -hmm. still, you needed to be able to treat your patients to prevent that. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Thank you for sharing all of that. And so when you were when you got out of school or during school, I think you shared an experience you had of being with an osteopath who was famous for working with children. And I think you had an injury during that experience because students were working on each other and you got all lopsided or something. Oh, you happened. remember that story. Yeah. I was at my first national convention and we were doing some type of cranial technique. Mm -hmm. And I got off the table and I was extremely dizzy. And if I held my, one of my ears, my left ear upward, it felt like the top of my head was over my left ear. And if I held it, my head tilted in that fashion, I wasn't dizzy. Oh. So I was able to navigate without falling down over to Viola Fryman, who was famous in California, both for her legal defending of osteopathy back in the 60s when they made it illegal practice. Um, and I told her that this had happened to me. And she said, you see that table over there? And I said, oh, yes, I do. And I'm thinking, She's going to put her hands on me and it's going to be great. She goes, go lay down and fix it yourself. Oh my God. And I was shocked. Yeah. I was angry. Yeah. You know, if you struggle with it, that's the way you learn. And that's what she wanted me to learn. Oh. Not just to have someone fix it for me and then be able to bounce back. She wanted me to do it myself. I still have to admit I was mad at her for many years after that. Yeah. Now, I also worked with Dr. Ann Wales, who was um, an original member of Dr. Sutherland's study group. Dr. Sutherland was the man who first um, started cranial manipulation. And he has his own story, too. But I worked with Dr. Wales 
I think she was about 85 years old when we discovered her. But she had um, a clinic for children, for especially children with cerebral palsy. Mm. Um, and so she was invaluable in my early years as well, in terms of showing us how Dr. Sutherland uh, viewed the cranium, uh, viewed how, how we could best treat the cranium and the infant person to help them uh, to grow um, correctly. As you know, there are 28 bones in the, in the human adult skull, 22 if you don't count the inner ear bones, but there are, there are 40 bones in the infant. Um, like our frontal bone is in two pieces. The ethmoid, which is the bridge of the nose, is in three pieces. The sphenoid, which, is, which cups each eye, and which we refer to the greater wings as our temples, um, is in three pieces. The body of which holds the pituitary, really important stuff for lining up the eyes and lining up the pituitary. The temporals, the ear bones, are in three parts. And the occiput, which runs under and forms the foramen magnum or the, the great hole that the spinal cord goes through, is actually in four parts. And these bones are really not joined. They're like bony islands that are within membranes. If you have ever taken a fresh egg and hard boiled it, and then you can't peel the, the shell off because of that durable membrane. Just imagine those bony islands are in between, sandwiched between two durable membranes. And the only joint that exists in this newborn or in this birthing child is between the skull and the first cervical vertebrae. That's the only joint that exists in this, in this uh, newborn skull. The rest of it is just these bony islands that, you know, the brain is compressed so much. The brain is um, like a custard that's surrounded with fluid that then is surrounded with these bony islands and membrane. And when the baby comes down the birth canal, all that fluid gets pushed down the central canal of the spine. It's really quite an amazing event that us adults wouldn't be able to live through, but they have to be able to accommodate to this birth canal. And when they come back out and begin to cry, that creates, along with atmospheric pressure, this fluid to come back out of the spinal canal and enter into the skull and then reshape it. In many cases, it reshapes itself quite nicely. But in some children we see, they have problems with cranial nerve dysfunctions that cause um, what are considered 
in some circles is minor problems, but this affects their, their breathing, their swallowing, their latching to the breast, their ability to accept the breast, to turn their neck, and being able to hold milk in the stomach without, without throwing up, as it were. And so the question of how to help these people comes to play. And this is where Dr. Fryman and Dr. Wales had been um, most helpful because you get these newborns, you know, first in a general practice, you're young and everyone looks at you and I look 16 anyways. So you see the grandmother and if you pass the grandmother test, then her daughter or son comes in with their family. And next thing you know, lastly, well, not lastly, you're seeing the children. Then lastly, you usually see the man, you know, but mm -hmm. by then you really pass the test if he comes in, but you're seeing babies there and wow, what do you do with babies? They won't stop either kicking or crying or moving or you have your work cut out for you, as you know. Mm -hmm. So this is, this was the, um, this was the task we were given. And so I had to, had to work with my mentors to be able to help me manage these type of patients. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if the sphenoid is in three parts and that first year is when the bone will actually ossify into one bone. And you can do so much for the alignment of the eyes and prevent the need for glasses. I mean, you can fix it at that age. Whereas with adults, you're helping manage it, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. And because a visual strain in adults can cause um, a distortion of the skull that changes the venous drainage associated with, say, eye pain, sinus conditions, um, migraines, other types of vascular headaches, as well as, say, the vagus nerve, which passes out of the same uh, foramina. You have swallowing problems, you have motility problems, acid, enzyme, bile, and even flora are associated with the vagus nerve and heart function, lung function, asthma in kids. And um, they're just starting in the allopathic world to have vagal nerve stimulators, but I'm not ready to submit one of my babies to go have a vagal nerve stimulator stuck in their neck mm -hmm. when I can do so much with my hands. I mean, mm -hmm. if it's a matter of failure to thrive in life or death, and I've given it a whack, of course, but that hasn't happened yet. So um, there's a lot we can do for adults. There's a lot we can do for for children, but especially for infants, that first year of life. 
And so that's why coming here was really quite wonderful to meet uh, Andrea and you, Andrea Byers, B-Y-E-R-S in Oakland, massage therapist and tummy time consultant and wonderful person as everyone has been that I've met there and how wonderful it is to join everyone and in our small community treat these babies who come in who really are the outliers and they have many times nowhere else to go Yeah, it's been it's been sad that we haven't been able to work on them for three months. I mean, we're getting to see individual babies of moms who aren't um, afraid of contracting COVID from our offices, but we haven't been able to do the clinic. So it's just, yeah, we've got to get the word out that these babies need help from good osteopaths, great uh, craniosacral therapists who know how to work on babies and good pediatric chiropractors. Yes, yes. And so that's part of the impetus pushing me to do this podcast so that the parents listening can find resources wherever they are all over the world or um, a community of people and know where to turn and information how to how to help their babies it all starts there so when you had your own kids what were your experiences with that did that shape your practice at all in did you get a lot of teachings from that yes. experience as no as they say as soon as you have kids you can tell everyone else who doesn't <laughs> because you find a way to communicate with your children that you never knew that you could mm. just by looking at them or spending time with them in the same room, but nonverbal. Mm. And my son was, was um, turned in utero so that he was coming down his butt end first. And I had called Dr. Wales and she had my wife, Sally, um, walk on the floor on her hands and knees and allowing her back to do a, a natural cat cow during that time. And Patrick turned beautifully. Oh. But then when he engaged, he engaged in such a way that he was coming out the birth canal face up, which is kind of difficult. And they needed to use forceps on him because he was having some thriving issues. And when they removed him rather briskly, they broke his collarbone. Oh. They didn't know they did, but we looked at him and we had a baby that was in shock. And they reassured us everything was fine, but every time we picked him up, he cried. And we finally brought him back to the store. <laughs> the said, store. Look at this baby. And they realized he had a, a fractured right collarbone. 
which made him into a lefty, by the way, with a righty brain. Interesting, oh. interesting mix. But at that same time, I was in public health service. And one of my teachers, Dr. James Jealous, who I worked with a lot, he was the professor, he was the mentor that I studied with up at his office in Maine when I was in school. He referred me to um, another mentor who was out in Kansas City, uh, Lou Hasbrook. And Lou was, hmm, boy, 30 years older than me, 40 years older than me. And he had a still a thriving practice. And Lou treated Patrick, oh, I'd say five times. And on the third time he treated him, he said, I got it. And Patrick was this baby who would never sleep, always arching and bucking his head, um, difficulty with nursing. He was biting his mother. He was refluxing. And we went to, boy, everywhere within the medical program, everywhere within the medical program, and then started just going to authors who wrote books on breastfeeding. And the answer really wasn't there. The answer was really in putting their hands on this particular person and finding out what they had going on and then allowing the body to self-correct. And that first treatment lasted a week of just babies going to bed when babies do, babies nursing comfortably. His mom really couldn't stop crying every time she saw that. And in a week it came back and we brought him back and on the fifth visit, it had been completely um, alleviated. And we just, it was really a lesson. It was really a lesson. And where I was working in the public health service, wasn't interested in me doing any of that work. So I was doing it in the late afternoons and off days, which are already working between there and the hospital, you know, in the nursing home, uh, uh, 60 hours anyway. So, um, but you're young <laughs> and, um, I, I knew the value of it. I had a hard time, hard time copying the results, but it, you have to start somewhere. And so that's how my beginnings were initiated, how I was initiated into this. It sounds wonderful. I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I'm wondering um, what, what would be the best piece of advice that you have for a new parent who is being told, you know, by a pediatrician, everything is normal. Don't worry. They'll grow out of it kind of thing. Um, whatever it may be. What kinds of advice do you have to, what do you think it's important to keep in mind as a new parent? Well, I think it's important to always educate yourself. 
um, when you're looking at these problems, they, they may appear to outgrow them. But you have to remember that as the twig is bent, the whole tree will incline. So you can't have a problem that comes in infancy not be compensated for by some other place of the body and causing some other problem. We don't have time to completely get into the physiology of that, but you can have, as we said, visual problems, blood pressure problems, asthma problems, swallowing digestion problems. And you know, we talk about the cranial bones fusing um, and the, the, the cranial bones within the bone itself will fuse. The cranial bones within each other always remain open and moving. There is ample evidence for that. Um, but the twist in the body will remain and then you can have a problem down in the pelvis. You can have a problem with flat feet. You can have a problem with knees. And some of these don't come until you're 35 years old. And so it's, it, yes, you'll appear to outgrow the ear infections, but um, it just shows up somewhere else. And so I think it's a really good idea to have the baby looked at. The worst thing that can happen is the baby treats really well on the first visit and you're told that this child is fine and doesn't need uh, any longitudinal care in terms of the, you know, an urgency. But for sure, uh, what I've learned through my patients by putting my hands on them has allowed me to help them in ways that they don't yet have medications or procedures for because the intelligence of the body and its ability to self-heal is really the driving force of nature. And that we can connect with that and influence it and assist it and stabilize it is, uh, I think, one of the strongest features that we all as a group share. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that philosophy was Andrew Still's philosophy, and then Dee Dee Palmer kind of borrowed it from him. Mm. Yeah, that the body is one unit of function, has the ability to self-correct, self-maintain, self-adjust, self-regulate, and that structure and function are interrelated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the beauty of natural healing, holistic healing. So for parents out there wondering if your little one has a issue, large or small, um, educate yourself, get things checked out by, by out-of-the-box thinking, um, alternative practitioners, see an osteopath, a craniosacral therapist, 
pediatric chiropractor, somebody who's trained to work with babies and children. Because, you know, the pediatricians have a lot on their plate. They're looking at other things. We're looking at them, you know, the spine and the skull and the cranial bones, and, and they're not trained in that, and they're not trained in nutrition. And it, it really does matter what you put into your body and what comes out in the breast milk. And those kinds of things aren't big on the pediatrician's radar. Would you agree with that, James? Yes, I, I think it's to give everyone a break. If if they're looking for infection, inflammation, um, birth defects, and they feel that they're keeping the child out of the hospital, um, sometimes that attitude doesn't allow for fine tuning in one's practice. And by fine tuning, I mean, getting more into having uh, the mother feel comfortable with the child and vice versa with breastfeeding and, and, um, and having the mother's diet be one that the child can accept and having the parents be able to um, create a safe and a quiet household for this child to express their curiosity and their seeking more. And you, it really takes, you really have to keep drawing bigger pictures and seeing the next challenges that come to families because having a problem child can easily separate parents and philosophies and can easily disrupt a household. And, and uh, something I think I learned, definitely I learned it at the baby clinic is, you know, they'll put the baby down and say, okay, go ahead and treat this baby. And it may have been when I worked with you even that we just, stop and just wait and the room gets quiet and then the baby starts to talk and now you have your introduction to each other and now you can begin and if so if there's anything that i i'm learning as i'm getting older is to to cherish clarity because having a child grow in a confused household will stunt their curiosity and stunt their spontaneity. And it changes them as in terms of the people that they can be. And we like a comfortable child. And we like to evaluate that child's relationship with the mother, which starts at breastfeeding. And we like to evaluate the mother, father when they come in. And it's, it's a thankless job in some sense because they come in for a seven-minute treatment of the infant and it turns into an hour visit with questions that span your imagination. 
-hmm. And so um, it seems like you're doing an awful lot of work for very little gain, but um, it's, it's worth it at the end of the day that you're giving someone a good start in life. And that's why I do it. Mm. That's very inspiring. And just, just the cadence of your voice is, is very calming and relaxing and down-regulating for everyone's brains who's listening to you. So I want to thank you for that. <laughs> I don't want to put you to sleep. So. <laughs> yeah. We could all use a little down-regulation, just getting calmer and quieter. And but COVID so has been a blessing in that sense. Yeah. You have so much wisdom that you're sharing. And I love that getting older gives you more clarity and you value that in relationships with others and in families. Clarity. Well, when you didn't have it growing up mm -hmm. and then you start to see that in the native culture of West Africa and you still don't know what to call it. And then you start to see how people respond when you put your hands on them. And you begin to realize if you can have a wonderfully quiet office, how that changes the experience for any patient who came in. Mm -hmm. Viola Freiman used to have someone playing the piano in her office. Wow. So there was always story this live... Um, a live performance going on all the time. You know, what we forget is that our attention is living. It's a living substance. If we put our attention to our schedule and we try to force it with our mind, I have to get this done and that done and this done in this order. It's very frustrating mm -hmm. or it can be. Mm -hmm. But if we, keep our attention on what we're doing it seems like the schedule will sort of sort itself out mm -hmm. and it's gotten it's got me so convinced that i look up every day and say today's going to be a good day because no matter what i think about it oh that person's coming in again and they always talk too much it's like it always works itself out somehow Mm -hmm. I stayed later with them. The next patient got stuck on the bridge. It's like they came in on time. Everyone was, and then the office, you leave there thinking, wow, what another wonderful day. And so mm -hmm. I tended to just say, I ban negative thinking in my life because it always ends up okay. I don't even remember that much. I mean, what I had for dinner two nights ago, but I don't remember what my biggest problem was last week, you know? So if it was so damn big, right? Yeah. You'd think that I would still be scarred by it, but. <laughs> scarred by it. <laughs> no, I'm not. So what am I worried about? And, and I just want to be able to, you know, I, I think that having, t and you know this, the best way that you can be a resource when you put your hands on people to help heal them is to live that lifestyle yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I call it the SANE lifestyle. SANE stands for sleep, 
activity, nutrition, and emotion. And all of those are in balance. So I find I have to take my own medicine and take the dogs for a walk at night, every night, and eat well and not too much and stay away from stimulants and watch what I'm doing for junk light, junk food, junk content, all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And because it's like, I just feel like I have so much more clarity in the office when I'm quiet. Mm -hmm. And then the treatment goes better. And then the patient starts coming in with more clarity and more quiet. And And, and on it goes. And on it goes. Yeah, the gift it keeps giving. Well, thank you, Dr. Gatos, for being with our listeners today. You certainly calmed me and opened up a channel for healing. And um, I always appreciate what you share. And your stories were wonderful. And thank you, listeners, for being with us and um thank you for listening to episode nine and um any final comment that you want to make gosh um now you've (laughs) thrown a question at me i can't answer okay then there's (laughs) i think we're good but dr laura i look forward to seeing you over at the baby clinic and It's always wonderful working with you. Always wonderful working with you. And and God bless that baby clinic. I hope it starts up really soon. Oh, it will. Thank you again, everyone. And many blessings all.